Hello, welcome to another Alpha Bunga Bunga. I'm going to get these plugs out of the way right at the start. If you like what we do, if you're a regular listener and you haven't reviewed us yet, we'd really appreciate if you would do so. You can do that on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can we also really drop us- would. We really would. Uh, we'd also. Uh, you can also review us on our Facebook page. Uh, if you don't follow us on social media, we're at BungaCast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and wherever else. As you're listening to this, this is a free episode. Uh, we also have a Patreon, and I'd like to take the opportunity, of course, to thank uh, very much those who support us there and allow us to do free episodes like this. But if you're not familiar with the episodes that we do, uh, which are behind the Patreon paywall, it's not just bonus content there. It's not just sort of scraps from the cutting room floor that we throw onto there. We only do kind of original content for the Patreon. So there's things where the three of us, Phil, George, and myself, Alex, discuss issues in depth. There's the reading clubs. There's uh, the three articles episodes where we unpick issues on a theme based on three different articles that we each bring. And we also get regular guests on there where we get our close mates on to discuss stuff they've recently written. Um, Last month... We had Amber, um, Amber Ali Frost and Anton Jaeger on separately to discuss um, post-work, universal basic income, all all that sort of stuff into uh, what I thought were really great episodes. Yeah, yeah, and we plan to have more of that uh, in the future. So what we're talking about today is the media, and I appreciate it can be a little bit meta or a bit narcissistic for a podcast to be talking about the media. Um, we're not a podcast about the media, obviously, um, but it unfortunately plays a increasingly large role in our lives. We've done um, some episodes recently. Yeah, uh, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, yeah. another one with Amber Frost. Um yeah, I think it's it is an important thing um, to discuss, uh, <clears throat> you know, and to get get a bit of an an understanding of how it actually works. Um, this, you know, break down this the media capital T capital M, um, which hopefully we'll be doing a bit today. Exactly, and I think that, I think probably the better that one understands the way that so much of what we do is mediatized, it helps understand what is real politics and what isn't. Um, and I think probably the better understanding you have of exactly how the media works and include social media and the things that we co-create and, you know, the discourse that's created, uh, the better we can understand where real politics might happen. Um, and also where real, genuine, interpersonal relationships might happen and how they might begin to matter more than they do now. Um, so what we want to do today, I think with kind of two objectives, uh and this we're going to do with our guests who I'll introduce shortly. Uh, one is to try to understand the technical side of what is a major influence on mediatized discourse. So that is the algorithm. Um, and secondly, to understand how this all relates to politicization, which is, yeah, I mean, George, it's something we talk something, a lot. Yeah. Of, yeah, we talk yeah. about politicization a lot. I mean, I think it's one of the sort of founding concerns of, I guess, this politics, yeah. uh, this, this podcast politics at the end of the end of history how you know what's it what's the effect of history coming back how is that um politicizing people how do you know how do you get your eyes opened to politics um to the idea that we're not just objects but maybe might at some point in the near future possibly hopefully become subjects of political change so yeah i think uh, yeah really looking forward to to the discussion so, yeah 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 so uh just in a second we're going to call up joan carlos magalhães who 
for many years was a journalist at Folha de São Paulo, which is Brazil's paper of record. Uh, and he's in London because he's finishing his doctorate at the London School of Economics on algorithms and politicization. Um, his case study, as he'll tell us, I'm sure, is Brazil. Uh, but I'm just saying this now before we call him up just to explain a little bit about why we've invited João and why we think it's an interesting case to talk about. Because um, basically, there's many features here in Brazil that are very relevant, um, relevant to other places. So, I mean, half the population on t online, the other half is, and the other half that is, is very online, um, mm -hmm. especially on WhatsApp and, and Facebook. Um, you'll have seen it, you know, when, with Bolsonaro's election that there was a lot of fake news being spread through WhatsApp and, you know, that being blamed for his election. You know, we can ex explore to what extent we actually believe that's true. Um, but we've also have a situation in which the middle class have become very politicized and very polarized since 2013, which is a situation that wasn't the case before. Again, also very strongly linked to what's happened Facebook. And Brazil is going through, as regular listeners will know, a very sustained political crisis. So all of that probably sounds quite similar to wherever you might be listening to this. Uh, that's why it's probably a useful case study to look at when we're talking about algorithms and politicization and social media and so on. Right, so uh, we're going to call up João now. All right, so we've got uh, João Carlos Magalhães on the line. Hi, João, how's it going? I'm going well, thank you. Yeah, so João's interested in uh, democracy and I've already forgotten what it was. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it's a sort of academic again, but it's datification. Datification. Okay. So instead of diving into the question of algorithms, um, we're going to start yeah. with something a little bit more general, which is the phenomenon of blaming the media. And traditionally, this has been, I guess, a little bit more of a left-wing thing, um, because left finds itself, as by, by its constitution, sort of outside of power. And so it, it likes to blame the media for political outcomes, likes to blame it for... Uh, spreading untruths for backing the establishment and so on. Uh, but I think increasingly we're seeing the right doing this as well. So w yeah. just to start off, what do you what do you think of this phenomenon of, of blaming the media for, for political outcomes and for and for other um, kind of negative social consequences? Yeah, I think you frame it right. Um, it's it's less about the sort of a side ideological side than it's where, where you are in terms of um, the establishment, right? So if you go back to the 1920s and the 1930s, the Nazis, they would um, blame the media for everything at the time, especially because they associated media with democracy and the social democrats. But um, yes, then uh, after the Second World War, you have um, uh, the, the radical left, especially. They, they, in a way, they, 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 they still see the media uh, not so differently, which is a little bit concerning, but not so differently from the Nazis. They see the media as incorporating the establishment. It's something that should be taken down. Or then you have, of course, um, Chomsky, uh, who is the opposite, to be clear, <laughs> of the Nazi, right? But who will come up with this, in my view, uh, quasi um, conspiracy theory on how the media works and how the media um, structures. Uh, the bourgeoisie society or uh, incredibly unequal society. And um, I think when we were talking about the mainstream media, a highly concentrated media as it was in the 19, uh, essentially uh, until the, the mid 90, 1990s or until the 2000s, that argument um, when it was 
well made. It made sense because, of course, um, uh, the media is and it was at the time, especially dominated by some specific and highly uh, politically uh, biased, um, I would say, political forces, right? But uh, after the 2000s, uh, that argument starts losing, um, I would say, force, because now media is essentially highly fragmented. So um, I think it's it's hard to 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 explain how different actors in 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 the political in the political spectrum deal with the criticism to the media. So of course you have uh, now Donald Trump uh, doing that all the time, but he's uh, uh, talking about um, mainstream media and uh, and of course the mainstream media and American mainstream media that is historically connected with. Uh, the center uh, or the central left, central right, um, but I, and this in a way I think it's as I was saying in the beginning, it's connected to the fact that those actors are trying to portray themselves as uh, outsiders, right? So yeah. because they're outsiders, they're <laughs> essentially targeting the the center of what they imagine is the establishment. So it's, but, sorry, let me but, just just interrupt because I, it, it does bring something interesting to mind actually you know yeah. I mean, something a, a point that we're not the only ones to have made this point but you know the, the model of 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 trump is the closest model that he bases himself on is berlusconi but berlusconi mm-hmm. you know probably occupies that space that you were just referring to the kind of peak a, a point at which uh two two factors kind of there's a confluence of them the point at the greatest stage of mediatization and mediatization of politics mm-hmm. but before uh, it's fragmentation. So before it's fragmentation with social media and so on um, in the in the you know 2000s and, and 2010s in our current decade. So you mm. know you could I guess blame Berlusconi or blame you know the mainstream media for things in the late 90s because that was a that was a point at which uh, yeah the media probably had its the largest influence at a time yeah. before it became threatened from from you know social media. So uh, it's interesting when Donald Trump does it because Donald Trump does it at a point when you know, actually, the mainstream media doesn't have as much sway as it did. I mean, you're almost tempted to reply like, yes. OK, boomer. Uh, but I, I really hate that meme, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I think it's um, it's 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 complicated, right? Because if you see those guys, they are not you know, millennials. Uh, Donald Trump is a TV personality, uh, as we were saying before. He was he's a he's a guy from The Apprentice, right? <laughs> he's a reality TV character. So he's a TV guy. But um, that's perhaps one of the ironies of the thing. So he got his, um, let's say, his clout, his um, uh, uh, power or his uh, ability to mobilize people from his persona, which was built again on the TV. But he was only able to become who he became, uh, especially in the 2016 elections, because of social media, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I think that also per, um, points to the difficulties of, Make uh, of um, making very clear distinctions between mainstream media or legacy media and social media. It's actually a really complex environment in which different kinds of media uh, feed uh, essentially uh, sort of a, they, they 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 cannot be understood as isolated. So, so I think this I think this feeds into a, a new kind of um, structure of argument when people are blaming the media. Maybe previously, and I think. Alex's point about Berlusconi's, you know, well made that in maybe in the 90s at that point, 
you blame the media the media is quite unitary it's these these big newspapers or it's tv it's it's um so you kind of can point to identifiable sources but now when people blame uh media for the for political outcomes it's often really blaming social media blaming mm. off, and then it becomes a bit more disaggregated the the um potentially the responsibility or the actors and so that's why i think it's really interesting we're going to be talking about algorithms because the the explanation kind of runs through those those nuts and bolts of how social media works in a much different way to you just have a powerful person who influences editors of tv and newspaper um news <clears throat> now it's how is the uh, the news constructed in a fake way from the ground up, which is a bit of an interesting shift. Yeah, no, yeah, but it, uh, I think um, one of the interesting aspects is how people, in a way, they are still in the 1970s, they are still in the, in the 1980s, and they the way they criticize social media, they personalize it, and they um, talk about it uh, as if it was this year, as if they were criticizing the New York Times or if they were criticizing... Um, CNN. So there's a lot of talk about censorship. There's a mm. lot of talk about, you know, power concentration and how some, I don't know, um, shadowy schemes are going on behind the scene um, to uh, shadow ban, let's say, the left or now shadow ban the right as well. And I think if you go back even, uh, of course, as we're saying, the left, I think for a long time, in established democracies or in the rich developed world uh, has been the actor that mostly has mostly that at the time mostly criticized the mainstream media but uh, of course the far right always criticized the the mainstream media as well it's just that now the far right has so much voice um, that we are also listening to them i mean <laughs> the far right is in power right so if a guy a guy like donald trump essentially in, in my view he's an extremist he is a far-right individual. So my point is that you're absolutely right in the sense that today things are way more complex than they used to be. And in fact, even in the 1970s, uh, things were much more complex than someone like Noam Chomsky assumed. Mm. There's, there there's, has always been a huge simplification of how media works and what kind of interest um, um, makes, uh, sort of a shapes the way media work or not. But... Um, I think people they have a hard time making complex arguments. So right. yeah, when, it's almost like we need it's almost like we need a critique of the media as well as a critique of the critique of the media, which is, seems a little bit like what you're advancing. <laughs> yeah, well, of course. Uh, at the end of the day, who who the, sort of a, it's academics who do that, right? Because people they simply they don't have I don't know. Um, they, they, you don't see even the, how journalists criticize media. It's a highly simplistic uh, form of criticism. Um, but I think my point is just that people, they are still criticizing Facebook as they were criticizing the C CNN in the 1980s or the 1990s, right? And I think this is highly problematic because um, it's obvious if you cannot really understand how things are and how exactly social media shapes politics, uh, uh, you're not going to, 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 to solve any problem. It's very unlikely that you will be able to sort whatever uh, you know problem is happening okay so i think it might be good because your academic work is very interesting on this so it'd be good to maybe build uh the case from the ground up so let's start with some of your empirical work um it'd be interesting 
to hear what you found about what people think about social media algorithms. Mm. So, you know, do they, do people tend to see it as neutral? Do they see it as biased? Who do they think is in charge? Do they blame people for what gets seen and gets not seen? So can you tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of, just in terms of the interviews you've done on this? Yeah, yeah. So just a little bit of uh, the sort of the background of my, my research. So as, as you said, on, um, this research was done in at the LSE. And I think that in the beginning, I was essentially concerned with uh, so how Facebook, in a very general terms, I mean, how, how Facebook shapes the way people talk about politics, not Facebook as um, only a platform, but the fact that Facebook is uh, structured by uh, algorithm systems, right? Algorithm systems that define visibility, what you see and how you're seen by the platform and other actors. So, and I was especially interested in, uh, interested in the Brazilian context because in Brazilian and um, it was 2016 and it was like, what was happening to this country? How, how the country that I knew was transformed into this highly politicized, incredibly polarized country. Um, so I think, so when I went to, to do my field work, uh, which were essentially interviews with ordinary people, but uh, people who talk about politics on Facebook, but they're not politicians, they're not part of social movements. They are just people who became politicized after 2013 in Brazil. Um, and it, I, that was my first question, which essentially, um, well, what's happening? What, what do you think is happening on Facebook? Mm. Um, because it was, uh, at the time, especially if you, the academic literature was, um, hammering down the argument on black boxes. Like Facebook is a black box. No one understands how Facebook works. Uh, there's this really complex algorithm that is making decisions and definitions on visibility. And so what's the, even, what's the point of talking to ordinary people? Because they uh, wouldn't be able to explain you what Facebook is because they don't care. They don't know. And I think to my great surprise, when I went to do my field work, everyone has some form of understanding of how Facebook's algorithms work. Uh, and I think my, in my work, what I found is, um, what do you say, is like three different imaginaries. Uh, that's the kind of term that I use to define those, those understandings. So, uh, and those three imaginaries, they are uh, present all the time. So, different people they will they they imagine that facebook works in three different ways and they will activate these three imaginaries at different moments so the first imaginary is the idea that uh, you have absolutely no control of how facebook works you might use your privacy um, settings and you think that uh, no one will see but who knows at the, at the limit the police officer might you know uh, find a way of uh, seeing what you're posting the second way is that, mm, in fact, I can control uh, because algorithms, they may have then would not use the term algorithm, but they uh, will say that um, they know that there's a logic of visibility, which is um, that his, their actions uh, are connected with what they will see in the future. So if I click on something, that thing will appear again. Mm-hmm. Or if, if someone um, uh, uh, talks to me, that person will appear again to me, etc. And the third one is uh, something that's much simpler in a way. It's like, well, I have total control of what's happening here uh, because I have my privacy settings and I can, uh, I don't know, block people, etc. So it's a really, at the end of the day, it's an incredibly um, 
it's not that there people don't know what's happening. It's that people have too many ideas of what's going on. And they have to, to navigate and negotiate those different imagined rules of visibility, which puts a lot of um, stress on people. So people are pulled to two directions. On, on the one hand, they feel that they have to become more visible because if they if you're not visible, no one will actually see what they're posting. If no one sees what they, they are posting, um, they will not be heard. Their voice is useless. On the other hand, they know that if they become too visible, they will become the target of harassment, abuse, and all sorts of um, uh, negative uh, um, feedback, so to speak. Mm. Increased, so, increased risk of being cancelled. Exactly, that's yeah, sort of being cancelled. That's uh, how <laughs> some, some people would put it, yeah. So I think, so people, I think my biggest um, surprise was how actually sophisticated people's understanding of Facebook's um, workings or inner workings is. Uh, I didn't, I was not prepared for that. And that makes sense, in fact, because especially I did my field work in the beginning of 2017. And especially after 2016, algorithms have become a sort of, a, uh, uh, in my thesis, I call it a, the, the, a public secret. Everyone talks about the secret. And, oh, my God, how this is so secret, it's so complicated. But uh, you have dozens of millions of people talking about algorithms. Mm. So it's, um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit paradoxical. Uh, what do you, I mean, well, how would you place responsibility then on what gets seen, what gets created, you know, the discourse in, mm. in, in, in capitals? Because um, I think, you know, some of your academic work, you discuss this question of responsibility, you know, that do you blame the media for what get, uh, rather the kind of social media platforms themselves for what gets seen, what doesn't? Um, is it people? Is, how much, to what extent are you know, social media users, the agents of what gets created as a, as a discourse. Um, and, and then there's also the question of, of filter bubbles, which I think we'll move on to a little bit after this. But firstly, uh, just a question of responsibility. Like who's, who's, you know, who's responsible for the discourse? Yeah, um, that's a great question. It's uh, philosophically, I would say it's the hardest because as we were saying before, there's a strong tendency to blame the platform. And I'm personally, I, I'm extremely critical of how Facebook works. But uh, the way they, like, the, the idea of an algorithmic system is that the algorithm is just the infrastructure, right? Mm. So it depends on what, how you feed the infrastructure with your actions. So there's a logic which is, you can call it um, an interactional bias. So which is exactly, we know how actually Facebook's algorithm works. Uh, we know that it depends on interactions. Uh, it's, a, it's very simple. It doesn't go into all the details of how the algorithm works. But we know that uh, without interaction, there is no visibility, right? So if no one likes your post, it, it's very unlikely that other people will like your post, etc. Um, so, and but going back to the notion of responsibility. So uh, if you go back to um, the 1970s or 80s and 1990s and how people consider the responsibility of media was that, well, the responsibility of media is in the, um, rests in the, um, the assumption that the media is able to represent the word. There's a huge amount of things happening, and the media will not only select what uh, should be shown, but also will show those facts in a certain way. Uh, but that's not how uh, um, 
social media works, right? So, mm. so Zuckerberg is not making a decision on how you should talk. But what, um, what you can say is that there's an indirect modulation of talk or an indirect modulation of um, behavior, right? And then uh, indirect modulation of representation as well, or self-representation. Uh, and it's essentially people, once people make sense of what are the rules of visibility, they will negotiate that uh, rules of visibility through their behavior. So what I found in my, in my field work, I mean, it's impossible to uh, summarize everything, but um, there's this uh, sort of a uh, fragmented and uh, dispersed idea that people are radicalizing their, their discourse on social media to get more interactions and with more interactions get more visibility. And I absolutely found that. So, and the interesting thing is that I didn't speak to Donald Trump. I spoke to, you know, uh, absolutely ordinary people. So mm -hmm. there is a, also an infiltration, uh, the deep infiltration of this, of this sort of a behavior, political behavior amongst um, ordinary people. So just, yeah. just to jump in here, I think it was a really interesting point that you made about the um, aspiration that perhaps traditional legacy media has to represent the world. Um, and I think this is a point that came up in our discussion, which um, we mentioned in the, the intro with Amber Frost on, on the Financial Times. Here you have a, um, a newspaper which, which does aspire to represent the world in a more or less comprehensive way. It's kind of a, a full picture. And of course, you don't have that in... Um, social media this is hardly sort of the most groundbreaking point but of course the it's interesting that describing the infrastructure uh, the algorithms as the infrastructure of social media because that really um it illustrates one of these the key points that you know we are users of social media we um interact with with each other through mediated through this infrastructure but we're not the customers of course the the algorithms are a way to um to ex essentially to extract extract more more data which is then yeah. What is what is really being sold to to advertisers, and that's how obviously all these social media companies have. This is the business model on on which they're they're based. I mean, so I guess my question is: to what extent did the people that you spoke to um, perceive this or under understand this, or or to what extent were they kind of realistic about the this idea that yeah, you know, we get Facebook for free, but there must be there must be a, a cost, there must be some sort of um, you know, no, nothing um, like this is, you know, comes for comes for free. Yeah, I don't think they really care. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think most of them knew that they're the, the sort of a, the essential or the uh, crucial elements of the political economy of data on Facebook, but they they didn't really care because at the end of the day, one of the biggest problems with the discourse about privacy is that for many people. Privacy doesn't, we know that it does, the, the kind of harm that, um, especially when you think at the collective, collective level and then how uh, harms to privacy can uh, become a crucial harm, to, crucial harm to democracy itself. But for people, they don't see exactly what, how, how my privacy is being harmed here. And it's, it's, it's something that for them, it's just creepy. I mm -hmm. think that's perhaps the best. Uh, that's how um, it surfaced on my during my interviews. People are extremely afraid, not of having their privacy um, 
uh, harmed, so to speak. But um, with sort of a, what kind of um, it, it's it's I think it's hard to describe it because people they describe in uh, terms that are not necessarily about morality. Mm-hmm. It's about creepiness. It's like how can who knows what's happening? So yeah. there's huge uncertainty about what's going on behind the scenes, right? What's going on behind the screen. Mm-hmm. And they feel, um, I guess, uh, uh, quite, what's the right term for this? I think scared. I think it's a, uh, the way people say it's like a horror movie um, in the sense that how come that company knows so much about me in the sense that look what they are offering me in terms of ads. But how, of course, and uh, during my interview... But it, it's a horror movie they want to keep watching, evidently. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's kind of a, puts them off, you know, to some extent, right? So many people, I think it, it raises questions, but it's not a question of, you see, about the business model. It's not a question about who, who is the client and who is uh, the product here. It's more like, um, um, I would say, maybe the inequality or uh, imbalance, right? Mm. So how they know so much about me and I don't know anything about them. Mm. And yeah, but you're right. I mean, it's not necessarily that some people are willing to stop and say, okay, this is getting too creepy for me, uh, but the creepiness of how of how Facebook works actually it it feeds into lots of conspiracy theories. Um, that's something that my thesis doesn't touch on, but I think it's something that I'm doing research with a colleague now. And all this all sorts of conspiracy theories on how algorithms work, and it it it's absolutely pervasive. So one of the things that for a long time we thought it was a fake, it was a myth is that Facebook is listening to our conversations. So uh, not sure if you saw that, but um, for many yeah. years, I would say like five years, people are saying, yeah, Facebook listens to our conversations, etc." And you have many people, um, including people who used to work at Facebook and now is critical of Facebook, going public and say, listen, this is, this is bullshit because Facebook has much more data about you than uh, Facebook needs. So what's the point of you know, even recording, getting this kind of really complex data that's hard to make sense of, et cetera? But now, I think two or three months ago, actually, Facebook said that it it was listening to some things, and it was well, maybe. But, uh, it was and this all bad. all via Facebook or like by a messenger, WhatsApp, Instagram, or you know, where's it? I, where's I, it don't, I, I'm, I don't I I don't re, I don't remember exactly where the they were getting the data from, uh, and I don't think they 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 said that explicitly. But my point is that one of the problems with those um, the, this kind of a media. Company and I think it's not so uh, different from again, um, you know, uh, the TV from the 1970s. Is that people they don't understand how it works, and it's so powerful, it's so central for their life um, that they keep trying to make sense of it. And the best way to reason about media is a conspiratorial reasoning. I think it. I think especially Facebook. Um, it. The way it works, not only Facebook, of course, I'm talking about maybe Instagram or YouTube as well, any algorithmic social media. Uh, they, they give you all the time, they're giving you like uh, indications that they know a lot about you. But you never know when the indication is a mere coincidence and when the indication is in fact uh, the product of a datafied decision-making process. It's similar point. So. It's, do you think typical, it's, it's a typical situation that conspiracy theories arise mm. when you have tidbits of information 
uh, that make you confused and you just start to wonder, it cannot be a coincidence. And I heard, and I got that a lot in my, in my interviews. It cannot be a coincidence. Yeah. I think it, it seems in many cases safe to assume that it, it's not a coincidence. That thing that you were uh, talking about, um, that you're, um, <clears throat> in, in Facebook messenger or whatever, suddenly you get an advert related to it. It seems, uh, more likely to be, um, the product of some uh, algorithmic decision making than it does to be just a, a pure coincidence. But I guess this kind of um, leads on to a, maybe a bigger question and something else that you're um, interested in in your in your research, which is around um, politicization and around, I guess, how. Um, so I guess maybe to frame the, the the discussion a little bit is: Do you think social media is um, politicizing people in a in a significantly different way than previously? Um, or does it only basically strengthen existing political positions? Yeah. So I think um, first it's important to understand what is politicization, right? So what is to become mm. political? Um, I think one of before, if you of course, um, there, there's always many ways in which you get, become political. Well, politicization is a process that happens in your private life, uh, talking to like a family member, happens in a school, talking to people. But uh, media has always been a very important element in that because you essentially you get information from media. But it, what happens with social media is that social media is so pervasive. So uh, in, uh, now your friends are social media, your family members are social media, your school friends are on social media. And of course, media is on social media, <laughs> right? So CNN is on social media. Mm. Um, so what happens is that, so then when you, when you try to understand what it is to become political, it is um, it's a way of positioning yourself in an imagined uh, moral map, if you will, right? So you don't know, uh, the kind of people that I spoke to before the 2013 events in Brazil, before the beginning of the Brazilian political crisis, they kind of knew what was politics, but they, they didn't position themselves into this wider map of politics. And because of uh, what were happening, they started to speak on Facebook. And when you start to speak, you start to get feedbacks and people, and by this really iterative process of talking and listening and getting feedbacks, et cetera, people start to understand who they are. Um, and what happens is that when you, you this process, which happens, uh, had already uh, always happened everywhere, or out, maybe not necessarily everywhere, but in different spheres of life, when this process happens on um, social media, what you have is a, uh, is a process of political becoming, if you will, that is incredibly shaped by the logics of algorithms, but not by the um, logics um, of the algorithms per se, but how people imagine those logics. That's a really important distinction. I'm not saying that the algorithms are the ones who are influencing those processes is how people imagine those logics and how they start to um, trying to negotiate the logics of visibility when they are speaking. So you say, um, so how exactly that changed? What I found in my research, it's quite concerning and I think it goes uh, or talks to a little bit on like what we were talking about, the responsibility aspect of it. Uh, What's, what's apparently happening is that people realize that in order to be heard, which is a form of becoming political, right? In order to be heard, the first thing that they should do is to become visible. 
right? Uh, but to become visible on Facebook, you must comply with imagined rules that are not necessarily uh, conducive to a democratic understanding of how uh, you speak politically. So one of the things is, as, a saying, as I was saying before, is this idea that the only way to become visible is by silencing other people, right? Either by abusing other people or um, manipulating other people. So those, those um, others, other users, they will somehow interact with, your, with the way you speak, with your voice, and then you're going to get visible, and then you can somehow um, be heard as a citizen, right? Right, so, that, so that, is, that, that thoughtful, long post on Facebook or long thread that you do, um, being really balanced and equilibrated, uh, yeah, <laughs> isn't going to get you anywhere. Yeah, so exactly, exactly, yeah. And that's, and that's absolutely how you become political, right? So because by, uh, we are not, it's not only a way of positioning yourself, or to put it another way, the way you position yourself in this wider map of what being political means, you do that by talking, right? You do that by acting. It's a form of social practice. So, the, so the, on the one hand, so people, they, they feel pressure to silence other people. On the other hand, they, of course, there is a huge amount, an amount of self-censorship. What you can or cannot speak, um, that goes, uh, that's connected to the content of what you're going to talk about. But it's also, as you just said, it's connected to how you talk. It's a, the, you might be the new you get Habermas, but you're not going to speak as you get Habermas on Facebook mm -hmm. because I, I think one was enough, you really. Visible, but... right? huh? <laughs> I thought one was enough personally, but anyway, <laughs> um, I think we should move on to something specific, which is maybe a consequence of politicization. Though maybe that's a question: is the creation of what we I guess commonly referred to as filter bubbles a consequence yeah. of politicization? Is it a politicizing moment as well that suddenly you find yourself in a filter bubble and that you are politicized in a certain direction um, or does it only confirm pre-existing worldviews and I think I might just use this opportunity as well to make a little plug because I, you make certain examples to the Brazilian case um, you said earlier you know suddenly in 2013 everyone's politicized and polarized I, I think probably our listeners will be familiar with it but um, if you aren't it's worth going back and checking out some of the episodes we've done in Brazil, um, if you go on to um, Patreon or Podbean, you can click on some of the themes, click on Latin America, and you can see the episodes we've done there, uh, where you'll get a little bit more of an understanding of the historical backdrop. I, I only raise this because I think it's worth um, not just understanding the specific case of Brazil, where suddenly there's this uh, explosion of, of what seems to be politicization and polarization after mm -hmm. 2013, but it's similar to certain things that happen elsewhere in the, around the world, that suddenly there's this explosion of yeah. protest, for example, and you weren't really thinking about politics at all. You were just concerned with your own private life or whatever. And then suddenly there's people on the streets and you need to get involved and you want to understand what's going on. And after that moment of explosion, you suddenly get, you know, you get a political understanding and you suddenly get a political label and you find out what side you're on. Um, and so maybe, I guess the question then is, yeah, well, to return back to the question of filter bubbles, like what comes first? Is it the politicization or is it the filter bubble? Uh, how does this whole process work? And, and with, with uh, in mind thinking about, you know, what might be happening in Chile now, for example, or what, etc. So I think uh, I would uh, begin by saying that I'm a huge critical of the very notion of um, filter bubble. That's a, that's a myth <laughs> that has been... Uh, 
proved many times over in empirical studies that there's no such a thing as filter bubble. This is a very intuitive notion that was uh, pushed by a guy in the beginning of the 2010s, uh, Eli Pariser. And if you read his book, uh, the book has absolutely zero data, right? So he's just, well, if the algorithms work in this way, that is the natural consequence. And, and I, I think the, the case of the filter bubble is a fascinating um, example of how people make sense of social media because it, um, it's a beautiful um, slogan in a way, right? So filter bubble, you can imagine. It's a beautiful metaphor. Uh, but uh, so I think the first thing is that many, many studies have shown that actually people today that have a much more varied, even on social media, need a diet than it would, people had before. Uh, and especially when you compare people that don't use social media and people who use social media, people who use social media are more exposed to things from, um, uh, to information from different sides of the political spectrum than people who are just, let's say, watch Fox News or um, in Brazil, Global, etc. And there's a reason for that, is that because uh, when you were on social media, I think the biggest problem of the understanding of, of, of the concept of filter bubble is that we are uh, monoliths. Well, if you're a Democrat, the only thing that you care about is, I don't know, um, health care or Medicare for all or whatever. And actually, uh, everyone is very multifaceted, right? So we have different uh, understandings and different interests. So you might, and uh, in addition to that, on, on, on social media, we don't only have, you know, political friends. We have, you know, your cousin who is actually conservative. And you, you maintain this relationship with your cousin, not for political uh, reasons, but because uh, family reasons, you like the person, whatever. You're forced because it's an uh, annoying cousin, whatever. And this guy will post things about um, uh, political uh, we uh, post things about politics that uh, are coming from a completely different ideological uh, point of view. Uh, so it's important to say that there is no such a thing as filter bubble. Uh, it did, that doesn't mean that the Facebook's algorithm, they want um, uh, to show you what you have uh, shown before to the algorithm that you want. But what we want also change over time, right? So I can give you an example. So if you ask me, if you had asked me two years ago whether I supported the Lavajato operation, the anti-corruption operation in Brazil, I would say that yes, I kind of do support. But today I don't support it anymore. And it's not because of Facebook, but it's because of how the developments and things that happened in Brazil. And now we know that that operation was itself um, the consequence of corruption. So. When people, they get politicized, they, it's not because the, they don't get polarized uh, or polarized, maybe it's not even the right term. They don't get um, radicalized because of how, uh, what they see on Facebook, right? They get polarized or because how they get uh, feedback on Facebook. Let's say if I post, as we were saying before, if I post a huge philosophical text on Facebook and no one actually cares, um, so what's the point of being me? What's the point of being that person? I want to be someone else. I want to be accepted. 
And that's and people will they start to modulate their behavior and modulate their subjectivity, right? That's an element that most of people they want to avoid. Well, subjectivity that goes into psychology, whatever. But that's how people. That's uh, actually a realistic understanding of what's going on. Um, is that people they want to be heard, and they will do anything, it, whatever is needed to be heard. Uh, and then mm. you can say that the sort of algorithms they, they they come in because if to be heard you need to be visible so tell me what i need to what i need to make to be yeah. visible so yeah. i can be heard but you you were you were saying something that's absolutely important and it's something that uh, has been uh, not forgotten but people are not really looking into it but I think we, in the past 10 years or so, we have seen a sort of an acceleration of politics. Uh, there's a Brazilian philosopher who calls that there's a rebirth of politics. Uh, uh, his name is Paulo Arantes. I mean, he uh, he's a very interesting uh, thinker, mm, uh, yeah. but and he doesn't he doesn't unpack what is that. Uh, and usually, philosophers they don't really care about media, but I think. Um, and there's so many other things happening, right? So you have, of course, the uh, the deconstruction of an, the new liberal order, all the uh, problems that uh, uh, somehow were, were created by 20 years of austerity or minimum state uh, ideology, etc. But I think social media, they interject politics into our everyday life in a way that has never occurred before. So you don't have to like politics to be exposed to politics all the time, um, essentially because uh, social media is infiltrated into our everyday life. We are we are on social media when we are uh, working. We are on social media when we are you know in the bathroom. We are on social media when we are in a bar having drinks. Uh, so before we could just turn off. Okay, let's like okay, you're, we're watching here. You know the. I know the TV uh, program about politics, and I don't care about politics, so I would just you know uh, switch the channel. Uh, but now that has, I think it became and is becoming increasingly uh, harder to not think about politics. And of course, in, in addition to that, is how politics connect people and make incredibly easy to organize. Um, that happened, of course, in 2013 in Brazil. That's uh, happening now in other. It, it will keep happening. So the the uh, the way that politics, uh, sorry, the way I think the social media algorithm, social media, uh, change politics is also uh, making it so easy for outsiders to threat the the order. So uh, think of Bolsonaro again in Brazil. So this guy was a no one. He was on the fringes of democracy. He was. Uh, a clown. Everyone was laughing at him, and thanks to there's no other way. I mean, that's thanks to uh, um, Facebook, thanks to uh, WhatsApp, he became known. Because if if he if he had to wait for uh, you know the mainstream media or even his political party, his political party is nothing. In that in that sense, he's in that sense he's different from Trump, for instance. Um, and I don't know, I think it's like what happened in Brazil, you were talking about the 2013 events. I think the, the, the historical backdrop in Brazil is that as a country that 
doesn't have a lot of uh, political mobilization in its past, uh, despite, mm. of course, all the things that were done. And suddenly, I was there, I was covering the, the, the 2013 protests. It was a huge shock, a huge shock. No one understood what was happening, because there was, it's very similar to what's happening now in Chile. There's no leader. Uh, how those guys are getting here? <laughs> uh, we were asking ourselves when we were in Brasilia, in the palaces, and the palaces, people were trying to break in the palaces. And it was just like sort of a phantom organization. It was sort of a miracle as if it was, I don't know, coming out of nowhere. Mm. And that, of course, that feeling is by, was not only in Brazil that was happening. And it's yeah. not only now. And next year, somewhere else, that will happen again. It, it seems to be like a major feature of our contemporary politics, these explosions so, of protests with, which are leaderless in Kuwait and so on. I mean, it's something that we've discussed a number of times on this podcast. We're going to continue doing so. Yeah. Um, I think one of the interesting things... Um, I mean, with the Brazilian case, uh, and again, this is maybe generalizable, it's a, it, and is the question of, you know, what is the nature of the politics that emerges from these protests and in terms of its in interaction with social media and how that might create certain feedback loops or um, lead to the creation of certain political nucleuses? Uh, put, it, put it this way, basically, you know, is the politics that we see returning, is it class politics or is it culture wars? And I know that that's not the only the only two options available, but yep. I think you know some of the people who've studied Brazil make this argument that the kind of polarization that we see um, isn't a necessarily a sort of class polarization entirely. In many ways, it's a polarization on cultural lines, and I'm putting that in quotation mm -hmm. marks. But that you know yeah, that yeah. that you get enchipichismo, an, which again, uh, for anybody who's not familiar, um, check out the. Um, check out the past episodes we've done on this but you know basically uh, the, the sort of hostility to the workers party and by extension to to the rest of the left uh, that becomes a, a main pole of attraction and then you get you know the, the left on the other side but in many ways it happens on social media and it happens amongst different segments of the middle class or even you know divisions within the middle class so that you might get for example a teacher mm -hmm. who is on the left and you might get a small business owner on the right um or even people in the same sectors or, you know, types of work or whatever who find themselves, uh, people with the same background who might find themselves on the opposite side of the barricade. So it's not exactly, um, you know, class politics being played out. It's culture war in some way. Yeah. I So I think it, um, I would just make a distinction between what exactly is driving that dynamic in Brazil. Uh, I think because uh, I would just say that I don't think that the logic of social media or algorithm social media is what is, I think you're correct in saying that it's not about class and it's more about culture, so to speak. But I don't think it's connected with um, the logics of social media because what's happening here now in the UK is that you have Jeremy Corbyn who's using social media, but uh, along very classic um, uh, class lines, right? So he's essentially saying that, well, you have this posh candidate who is Boris Johnson, and we are here for you know, the many, not the few. And so he is also, I think what social media is driven by, is driven by, um, uh, of course, I'm not the first one to say this, but it's driven by, uh, uh, how do you say, negative emotions, right? Emotions of injustice. Uh, and what kind of injustice is that? It, it comes with uh, what kind of injustice people are able to 
uh, mobilize and uh, argue in a argue in a convincing way, right? So it's like as I think Jeremy Corbyn does well here in in the UK, and not only Jeremy Corbyn himself, but the momentum and all sorts of smaller uh, leftist movements that are essentially social media movements. Uh, they, they are not a brick and mortar social movement as we knew before. I think in the case of the Brazilian um, uh, situation, you're right. It's essentially because the Brazilian crisis was triggered not for, not because of uh, economic concerns, but because of corruption concerns. And corruption is something that in Brazil is, it's a concern of, the, of, the, of certain um, um, components of the middle class. Mm. Uh, so Actually, something which follows on from this, um, part of your work has been looking at how Corbyn was um, portrayed in mainstream media, as, yeah. uh, as people uh, call it, which again is um, um, a product of a certain um, fraction of the, the middle class in, in the UK, as in, as in most places. What did you find uh, in this study? Yeah, uh, so that's something that we did when Corbyn was getting to the leadership of the Labour Party. Uh, and he, so uh, it's a it's a work that I did with a professor and a PhD student, another PhD student at the LSE, and he was demonized. I was shocked because I was just getting here in the UK, uh, being a Brazilian journalist, and I I had this I was essentially reading the Guardian, and I had yeah. this vision wow. of the of of the the UK media as uh, you know much more balanced and. Uh, much more intellectualized than the Brazilian media or uh, Brazilian newspapers, at least, and uh, it, and the kind of uh, the way he was portrayed was not only um, was not only based on disinformation, but was also based on hatred. People clearly hated him, and on uh, based essentially on on an argument of class, right? So he was they were portraying him as a as a sort of a Leninist. Uh, revolutionary that was going to. Uh, I think this past week, someone here said uh, all those uh, all those ghosts they come back now uh, during the the current election. So they have lots of people saying <laughs> that you know Corbyn will essentially uh, uh, implement a communist state, which is ridiculous, right? If, so, but I only. think those things are very deep seated, and the, the the UK elite, after five years living here, I would say that. This is an incredibly racist and also, of course, classist um, society. Uh, but I didn't know that when I, we were doing that research. Mm, I think um, Cor Corbyn's portrayal has been, it's been a good lesson in um, the way that I think the British media is is um, quite lazy in looking for certain uh, caricatures and mm. certain, um, I don't know, historical parallels which really don't fit in in any way at all um but yeah and as i said earlier if, if only corbyn were were a leninist um if only we were about to introduce communism but i don't think that's the i don't think that's really on the on the the menu just uh, just yet but i guess the the question is what, what do you i mean did did you do you think it's possible to say anything about the effect of these portrayals on uh on voters or on um supporters for the or for, for um, candidates. I mean, I guess how, yeah. how how critical do you think people are when when reading these stories about Corbyn or seeing these um, cartoons of him in in a kind of um, revolutionary clothing or anything like right. that? 
No, right. So I think um, I'm from a school of thought that uh, what media say is what media say, but by no means it means um, that it equates with what how people make sense of what media say, right? So that also goes what we goes to what we were talking um, um, uh, in the beginning of uh, about like uh, fake news and disinformation and all the social panics about it. Um, uh, in reality, we. I'm 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 not aware of any research that actually look into how people uh, negotiate or how people interpret the mm. coverage the, how, the way that the UK media has portrayed have portrayed um, Jeremy Corbyn. So uh, this sort of the short answer is I don't know, but my feeling is that it cannot be so bad, right? So if you think of well the the um, the results of the 2017 election. And the way that he became very popular, especially with, you know, youngsters, I think, of course, uh, most of the newspaper here in the UK, not most, but at, at least those who were extremely critical of them, of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, they were, of course, on the right uh, side of the, of the political spectrum. And I don't think there's a lot of young people reading uh, the Daily Mail, right? So uh, as far as I know, the Telegraph is in a very complicated financial situation as well. So uh, I think it's co I, maybe if there's an indirect effect, it's how that might push the television, especially public service media, to also uh, portray not necessarily Jeremy Corbyn, but the, Cor the Corbyn movement in, in a way that's not completely faithfully, faithful mm -hmm. to what Cor Corbyn is and what his movement wants to do. So, I mean, we started with the question of blaming the media, and I think there's nowhere more clear than this. As you say, there's a, an element of unreality to, you know, people blaming the media or thinking, you know, that the Daily Mail has some decisive influence over public opinion when, as you say, you know, certainly younger people aren't reading it. People are, are reading fewer and fewer newspapers um, and treating people as sort of passive recipients of media mm. messaging is is problematic and it's especially problematic in in today's times as you've well explained in terms of you know the, the fragmentation and also the loss of authority of mainstream media institutions i i mean maybe and this is a question you know some of the more hysterical stuff about corbin you know um calling you know think he's a terrorist or the whole anti-semitism slur it's so the, the hysteria is probably a a, a, a reflection of their own lack of authority the lack of sense of mm -hmm. traction that mainstream media has you know if someone has to shout louder it's because they're not being listened to right and so yeah right yeah that's basically it that's what's happening now and i think it from from the from a, a practical kind of left-wing point of view you have to say well you know one you can't expect the media to be on your side and it's wrong to start mm -hmm. off with that assumption that they will play fair and secondly don't overstate its importance. Don't overstate the mainstream media's importance. You know, it's a maybe it's a tool there to be used when you can use it, and that's that. Yeah, and I would say that uh, people like Jeremy Corbyn, they they of course this guy has built a career criticizing the mainstream media. So for him, this is absolutely as you're saying. I mean, this is not uh, this is exactly what he was expecting. Maybe yeah, no surprises. And, and, in a way, it plays in his hands, right? He can come and say. Look, they're demonizing me, as they actually are, or they were, probably they are already uh, with the new new election. And uh, what I found interesting is how they they appropriate of those completely ridiculous criticism in their social media presence. So I think I, I 
I don't remember when exactly, but I think Jeremy Corbyn did post on Facebook and Twitter uh, sort of a, de just demonstrating the ridiculous of, uh, uh, of, of how he is portrayed in the UK mainstream media. And then the people who don't read the, the Daily Mail, but they read what Jeremy Corbyn says on Facebook, they will laugh out of, you know, Daily Mail. So he uses it. To, he he not it's not it's not a, a Jeremy Corbyn is him, himself demonizing the media, but he transforms um, the media demonization into uh, uh, an advantage uh, for him, I guess. Mm, I guess the, the the difficulty is always how you sort of balance between um, a kind of a very na naive idea that the media is um, neutral and impartial and mm -hmm. is, is is not politically engaged which is which is dangerous and then the other extreme which is that the media is responsible for for all the failures in in the left's political programs and and every, like <clears throat> labor didn't win the 27 uh, election because of of the media or is that you know giving it too much power and not and not saying that there's very real structural weaknesses in in the british left and in you know many european and, and worldwide lefts and i guess that's uh, not an easy kind of um path to tread yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, it's always complicated. But I would just like to stress that perhaps the biggest, um, I think the biggest problem that we're facing now is not necessarily how, uh, you know, mainstream media uh, uh, represents Jeremy Corbyn or Elizabeth Warren or whatever. It's the, the extreme simplification around fake news. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is the biggest problem. So we see lot, lots of very intelligent people saying, for instance, that, Fake news is what put Bolsonaro in Brazil into power, or what is what put um, Donald Trump into power in the U.S. And if 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 Boris Johnson wins here in the U.K., be absolutely sure that people will say that people voted on Boris Johnson because he was lying on Facebook or because there was a, a, a campaign on Twitter based on lies. I mean, of course, that's exactly the explanation that people uh, have for Brexit. And that's simply misguided, that is myopic, and that's extremely dangerous. Because um, if you, by, uh, I don't know, if, if you had a magical wand and you could just make everyone say the truth, it doesn't mean that uh, uh, bad people will not uh, uh, be able to convince people of doing bad things. I mean, of course, what is bad or not, it's always complicated, but you see my point. And I think, uh, this, as a media scholar, the more I see this discourse, uh, the more I get delusioned. I mean, this is not going anywhere. And it's very hard to convince people that, uh, you know, accuracy is only one component of what is, a, let's say, a democratic media environment. <clears throat> yeah, excellent stuff. As you say, it's not going away. And, you know, the UK election coming up, that's definitely the case. We're recording this on the day after Lula was released from jail. So it's not going anywhere in Brazil either. Yeah. Um, and I think you've uh, provided us an excellent guide, I think, to uh, avoiding the twin uh, pitfalls that George said a little bit earlier of a, neither a naive view of the media nor a conspiratorial one, but emphasizing um, people as people's capacity to be agents, but also especially the sort of interactive nature 
that happens, that you're not just politicized because you're a passive recipient of messages sent to you, but that you become politicized through interacting, through trying to become visible, through arguing and arguing back. And uh, maybe that's a, a good note to finish on um, to reemphasize the importance of actually having good political arguments. So thank you for joining us, Joel. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was nice. I like that. That was interesting. Um, mm. Kind of got a bit quite critical, actually, of some received notions. I mean, even the idea of filter bubbles, which I had just taken as read as as being a real thing. Uh, Jean was pretty critical of that. Yeah, I guess the um, it's quite easy to over overstate it, isn't it? And to say, look, we're all the <laughs> people sort of self-flagellate. And it's like, oh, I need to get out of my, my echo chamber. And, and that's why I follow five people that I don't agree with on, on Twitter and they really, they make, they make my <laughs> outlook a lot I get angry. Around. I get angry at them and then decide to unfollow them. <laughs> no, I really respect them. I respect what they have to say. I might not agree with them, but I respect their, the way that they put, put forward their case with, uh, with intellectual probity. Um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I think it is another dimension of the sort of the, the moral panic around fake news that there's essentially you know, and it's, this is not necessarily the most original point either, that it's <clears throat> over, it exaggerates the extent to which people are uh, influenced. Well, not not me, other people always are influenced by um, by by what they read and, and by the constraints that are applied uh, on, on what they receive and, and how they, I guess, um, come to see various different points of view in the media. Yeah, and, and also the, the interactional aspect that I... Um, try to kind of recapitulate there at the end. I think it's, it's important, um, the idea that politicize... And I think intuitively this makes sense. Um, in fact, someone made a great to, point... I have to say, I did think that... Sorry to interrupt there, but that's a good example of interaction. Um, I did think that that was all going to be a plug for interacting with, with this episode or interacting with the podcast. <laughs> were like, Interaction's really important, and that's why you should like... It. Right, Retweet listener. It. Right, listener. <laughs> no, <Retweet> no. <laughs> Get, uh, on the, get on the patreon add some comments get yeah. interacting yeah yeah no I, what, what Sorry, I, meant, I yeah no 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 what i meant is it is in the politics in the process of politicization point that angela nagel made um when we were discussing the zizek versus peterson episode um rather debate it was an episode that we did on that where um she pointed it out but i think it's right it, is that you know especially young men try to try out arguments and often you'll like, seize on an, a quite extreme form of argument um, and you'll test it out and it'll, you know, you might prove wrong. I mean, I can think about that as like, as a, as a kid, you know, as whatever, like being 15 and you, you seize on an argument and you follow it to solve it. And then you realize like, actually, that's a fairly weak argument because I wasn't able to um, really sustain my argument. And, and you roll back on that and you, and you change course and whatever. And actually that's kind of more the process of politicization than is, um, oh, I read this argument on Twitter and I was like, whoa, mind blown. It's actually more that you hear that argument on Twitter and you go, hmm, and you try it out with a friend then in the bar and they go, no, that's bullshit. Or they go, hmm, that's interesting. So you push it a little bit further. And mm. again, it's no. it's an interactional process in which you actually have some agency there. You know, you're not just a receptacle for um, for messages sent by by other people who already have their ideas made up. Yeah, no, I think that is a, it is an, an interesting and important point that, um, rather than just being brainwashed and, you know, you read one thing, <clears throat> believe that, you read another thing, you believe it. It is, it's, you know, it's almost dialectical, isn't it? It's, it's the, uh, the way in which you're, you're putting forward ideas, receiving 
feedback on them and and then developing the way that you see the world but i think that's only one element of it of course the media is important for politicization but you also have the material circumstances you're in and the and the sorts of problems that your everyday life and your particular working life presents you so i think it's important that you know <clears throat> we do uh, i guess appreciate the extent to which that the the greater interaction in social media is is useful but it's obviously not the only um, mechanism of of politicization but yeah right. was, no no but it also a... pe- people look for a language to make sense of their grievances right and so those grievances are real and they're material and they're tied to material um relations and experiences that people have in their real lives not just in media but the language through which they are able to express that is something that they will often pluck from you know from the ether as it as it were and so that and that's where politics comes in right because it's not mm. politics is not just social grievances thrown onto the world in fact some of what, one of the some of these protests that we get nowadays that we, we we were just referring to during the episode we talked about most recently with chile um are often moments of grievances just spilling out, but then they need to take political form. They need to be put into a specific kind of political language and given some kind of political coherence. And that's where arguments come in. Um, and that's where, you know, media comes in. That's where reading books comes into it, you know. And that's and that's important. I think that's where that's that kind of transition often gets lost. You know, it's either just pure grievance or it's politicization on social media. And the kind of mediation between those two things is what's forgotten. So yeah, you're right to draw attention mm. to, to that. Exactly. No, I think I think that's a yeah, it's a really valid point that particularly since 2016, there have been, um, or it feels at least like there have been a, a lot more grievances, which are very inchoate and people are in my in my account it would be responding to the felt loss of popular sovereignty is one of the key things but what that actually means the the meaning of those grievances and the directions which they're which which they're channeled um into um is is quite open and that's of course why people look to the sorts of media outlets which might represent or or claim to represent um those grievances and and then mistakenly attribute the politicization to to those areas whereas in fact they're just obviously reflecting in a success because of the um the prior politicization so yeah i mean the the direction that that gets taken in you know the, the actual politics that you end up um hanging your grievance coat on um to use a really poor metaphor uh, <laughs> it's, up, it's up for grabs but you know when you for example i mean something that we've talked about a lot downwardly mobile mobile middle class who feels increasingly squeezed, who feels that they don't have the same opportunities that their parents or that their grandparents had, uh, that the opportunities are being closed. You know, then you, you seize on to, to different grievances. And, you know, one kind of misconceived way might be through identity, right? That you see this as, you know, whatever. This is white men doing it to you rather than it being the operations of capitalism today. Um but that's important because I think a lot of what ends up happening today, that w- what feels like the return of politics, ends up being warped or perverted into a kind of culture wars language of kind of shrieky moralistic arguments where agencies are attributed to like some malevolent group uh, without a kind of real structural understanding, and w- which ends up not being real class politics. It ends up being mm. a form of, of, of um, culture war, but because it might adopt certain symbols of class politics or of, you know, powerful and powerless, of inequality of the rich and the poor, um, it seems like it's class politics, but it might not quite be that yet. 
So people are wearing the wrong grievance coats, if you will. No, you can't change the grievance. The grievance coat's just there. It's it's natural. It's, maybe it's your grievance skin. It depends what... No, this is just... <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to work. Um, no. No, I think it's... Yeah, it's a, it is a... You know, it's a, it's a good point in, in terms of what what is the um, media's role in in this um you might say that the the recent politicizations not being ex- generally um expressed in class terms it seems like the the um there there must be there's something to unpick there about how the media is involved uh, in a much much wider sort of failure of the left to to kind of offer material responses in general to um yeah. to recent political problems well and, and this is the thing where the ghosts come back which is something that drone said right that he you know they often feel like you're repeating the 1970s and the slander of corbyn uh and the trying to say like oh he's an whatever whether he's like an ira terrorist or he's a hezbollah or what you know i mean it's all these things which are symbols which surely don't make much sense to people today other than saying this is scary and something bad and you know you shouldn't pay attention to this um but there's also... I think you've been reading too much Derrida if you're talking about yeah. ghosts coming back. Maybe. Right. Yeah, but I mean, you know, the, these kind of symbols which like have lost their real reference. I was even reading something the other day about the use of... Um, the repeating of kind of like Irish Republican slogans in Ireland today um, by a generation who never experienced the trouble. So that people would be like, up the raw or whatever, right? Um, and they're kind of memes around this and stuff. And... It made me think like this is also a funny case of maybe people trying to seek out provocative political symbols of rebellion and radicalism and only being able to plumb a past which doesn't really relate to contemporary concerns, contemporary struggles. Um, And so you see the kind of mainstream, uh, you know, establishment doing it as a way to kind of scare people off. And so they have to refer to weird Cold War type things or try to reheat uh, reheat the Cold War through Russiagate, um, but you also get it on the left as well that we kind of grasp for these old symbols or you know you, this kind of cosplaying Stalinism that you get as well. Mm. We're like, ah, I'm gonna send you to the Gulag, and it's like it, it has it makes no sense to today's politics, and yet there's obviously like clearly a lack of new political symbols being created, new political mm. language to express these contemporary grievances, because otherwise you wouldn't be cosplaying as, you know, a, a Stalinist or whatever the fuck you might be doing. Mm. No, I think that's quite a striking image, microwaving the Cold War leftovers, um, trying to reheat them. Nice. But yeah, that's always the, the difficulty of any, you know, any revolutionary project that needs to take its poetry and its symbols from the future, not the not the past. It's not, it's not, a, not a very easy thing to uh, to do. Um, to just come up with a new um, political language or a new political sort of set of reference, which um, which you can then express the the, the conflicts of the of the day in. Um, but yeah, no, I think just on the narrowly on the on the British case, it is, um, and I think I made this point in the interview. It's just quite striking how little imagination there is. Um, political cartoonists particularly illustrate this. I think, you know, there's uh, yeah. <clears throat> but private eye has become, in my opinion, quite a lot less funny in the past few years because there's not really any cutting edge to some of the um, uh, 70s comparisons that are made and, and Corbyn in particular. It, I don't think they're very um, they're very good at skewering him and and very good at kind of um, finding amusing things about about him because 
they're they're looking in the wrong places and they're comparing him to the wrong things. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's actually the only place where the repost, okay, boomer, actually makes any sense. Your symbols don't apply here anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it makes me think that uh, Hegel, Hegel was the original boomer, right? He thought everything uh-huh. was fine and everything was for the best um, in, in the Prussian constitutional monarchy of the day. So he's, there you go, he's the original boomer in uh, mindset, if not in, in, in time. Marx, Marx was the first okay boomer uh, response. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's that's an awful note to end it on, but that is where we will end it. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, once again, follow us and interact with us on social media at BungaCast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And if you haven't left us a review yet and you like what we say, we like you like what we do, um, leave us a review. You can also leave us um, a negative review because that makes it the whole process seem that much more authentic. Thank you very much. Catch you later. Bye-bye.